You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So Psalm 104 is, it's known as the creation psalm. So I'm going to take this opportunity to actually talk with you a little bit in depth about the issue of creation. And Psalm 105 is the psalm to do with God's faithfulness to Israel. So these are two issues that I want to actually get into a little bit more. Now, if you, if you want to start what I've called a Christian rumble, if you ever want to get things fiery in a Christian, civilized Christian company, all you need to do is drop your opinion on either creation or Israel into the mix, and then you can sort of just stand back and watch things go. Now, I don't want, that, I don't want our discussion to be like that. I don't like it when discussions get like that, but... Because these psalms address both these issues, I want to use it as a way to try and actually help us understand what the issues are, why that is often the response we get. And I'll just say, if you've never encountered some of this material before, if you've never thought about it in the way that I'm going to share it with you tonight, that's absolutely okay. It's, you know, you've got to encounter it at some point. If you only take a few points away, that's a great place to start. So be encouraged and don't be discouraged if you don't get, follow me, but... Hopefully we can all stay sharp. I know it's an evening study, but some of this stuff is really important. It's not necessarily going to be about courting controversy. That's absolutely not the reason we want to do it. The Lord's servants are not to be quarrelsome, not to be argumentative. We want to present the truth in love. And this is actually one of these issues. That The foundational argument of why we get into these issues is biblical authority. You, you remember when Martin Luther was being questioned by the council, the Diet at Worms, and his argument was basically... My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. And his basic point was, I can't actually change my views because I'm convinced that's what the Bible teaches. So it's a bit, it was a biblical authority issue. And these issues, for me, come under that banner in a slightly different way. So let's just jump into these tonight, and we'll see how we do. So the creation psalms, if you've never heard that category of psalms, most people actually miss this category of psalms. We know about the, the impeccatory psalms and the all these different categories, but there is a group called the Creation Psalms. So this would be Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 8, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him. And then Psalm 104 that we're looking at tonight is the most in-depth creation psalm. So what we're going to do is I'm actually going to just read the whole psalm together now from beginning to, let, to end. And then rather than go through it verse by verse, as hopefully you'll see as we're reading it, because it is kind of self-explanatory as you go through the nature of the text, I'm going to speak about some issues related to it about creation. So let's just, let's just read it all together now. I'll read the whole thing in one sitting. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled at the sound of your thunder. They hurried away. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. 
He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nest, and the stork whose home is their fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the cliffs offer a a refuge for the Shephanim. He made the moon for the seasons, the sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God, and when the sun rises they withdraw and lie down in the dens, Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There there are the ships that move along it, and Leviathan which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That's a wonderful psalm there. And and obviously the theme of it is giving thanks to God for all of his glory and majesty simply by looking at the created order and looking at his providence as he keeps the world sustained. But it offers a fascinating experiment if we're on the subject of creation. If you have been in church any number of time, you may know that the issues surrounding the subject of creation really revolved around the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 to 11 to be precise, but more specifically the first two chapters that record the creation week, as we call it. Now, the debate is around whether these are supposed to record an actual narrative of Earth's early history, or whether they are just meant to be a poetic way of describing something God did or a a figurative way or a way to put a nice sound on theological points regardless of whether they're actually... So this is an issue that we've talked about in the church many times in the sense that it it really depends on how you interpret the Bible. The term for that, hermeneutics, that's the, the study of Bible interpretation. Now if you take the view that, this is the view I will be sharing tonight, that this is supposed to be a historical account of Earth's early history, there are a number of theological consequences that come from reading the text in that manner that you have to also accept. One, the creation week was six days. One, the evolutionary worldview that explains the origin of species is incompatible with Genesis. When I say that frankly, that's a controversial statement. I do not believe the two can go together consistently. We'll we'll touch on that more as we go through. Another one would be things like the God created everything out of nothing. The other one would be that the creation, actually the Earth's history, is not as old as secular geology would state. Another one would be that there was no death in the world before sin. There was no disease, there was no suffering, there was no violence. Another one would be that the flood of Noah was in fact a global flood and not a local flood. 
All of those are conclusions that flow naturally from reading the text in that manner. And I don't think you can get away with it. You read it like that, you take those conclusions. Now, because some people are unwilling to take all of those conclusions, they have to come up with a different way of explaining the text. And before we get into this, just let me say I'm not looking to point fingers at anyone to say that we're not brothers and sisters with people who hold different views. We need to be able to disagree agreeably. That is a lost art, it seems, in today's culture. And there are many much more godly and way smarter people who would hold different views to me. But all I want to do is to actually show you why, because you've heard us say it on occasion from the pulpit and get into it in little bits, I want to show you why we actually hold the views that we do, but also why we reject the other people's views. And that can actually be a good lesson, quite instructive to do that. So... If you're unwilling to accept all of those theological consequences, you need a way of explaining the text, or I would say explaining away the text, in fact, of Genesis. Now, one of the most popular ways to do this has been to state that the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 are a genre called poetry. That's the most common expression. And this then leads to different models that people have used to interpret Genesis. But the ultimate theme is that it is a poetical way of describing truths that God wanted us to know. I would say that most leading evangelicals in the UK, probably in America, but less so in America slightly, hold to the view that Genesis is poetical. One of the most recent and public incidents where people have been getting involved in this is Phil Vischer of VeggieTales fame. He recently put out a number of very public videos trashing what he would call the creationist worldview. And he was using arguments like this. So this is in the culture, it's out there, so it's, it's good that we deal with it on occasion. Now before I engage it, just on the surface, I would immediately say that Psalm 104 that we've just read is instructive in this debate, simply because if you wanted to read a poetic description of the creation account, that's exactly what we just read. Okay, So all you need to do to find out whether Genesis is in fact a poetic description of creation is compare Psalm 104 with Genesis and you'll see that the two narratives are completely different. There's really no similarity except the vague order that the psalmist is using here. So just on the, on the face of this debate, you, you can actually immediately argue, we all know the psalms are poetry. You can immediately say that Genesis is, is different, it's not the same. So you should immediately be slightly suspect of that argument. So what I want to do now is share with you four reasons why I take Genesis to actually be a historical narrative and not figurative language and not poetry. Yes, it's simplified language in many ways because it is dealing with things that we're obviously not going to understand to an extent. Don't misunderstand me. And that's why I'm avoiding the word literal. You might have noticed that people usually phrase this debate, is it literal or is it spiritual or allegorical? I don't like that term in this debate because it comes with baggage, it comes with misinterpretations. So I use the term historical narrative. It's a genre that we're looking at here. It just helps. I would advise you to stick with that. It helps the discussion. So the first reason why I believe the creation account in Genesis is, in fact, a historical narrative is from the Hebrew grammar itself. So this is an argument that comes straight from the text of the Bible. We would call this an exegetical reason. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about languages and grammar. I know that immediately makes many people's eyes go heavy. It does mine a little bit too, so I'll try and keep it simple. But basically, in the Hebrew text of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, 
there is a very distinctive verb pattern that you find throughout those two chapters. It introduces it with a perfect tense verb. I won't give you the name. There's a couple of Hebrew words for this. And it ends with a verb called a vav consecutive at the end. Now, what that basically means is when you read the text and you see these phrases like, and there was, and he said, and God did, these, these are what it's talking about, these continual markers that move the narrative along. That is a, a very unique construction in the Hebrew. And that particular characteristic of Hebrew construction is used for narrative. That is overwhelmingly what it is used for. You will only find that construction pretty much when you're dealing with a historical narrative. You do not really find it in poetry. So that's the first reason that I would say. Now, that, that formation of verbs occurs 55 times in the 34 verses between Genesis 1 and 2. So that, again, should tell you immediately you're not dealing with poetry. The text of the Hebrew does not allow it. Now, another reason is that you may notice that from Genesis chapter 12 to the rest of the book, that's Abraham onwards, no one really questions the narrative. Everyone knows from Abraham, you know, it's, it's just history, of course. It's going through history of the sons of Israel and Joseph and all these things like that. But that particular construction of verbs that I mentioned is heavy in Genesis 1 to 11, and then it continues and it moves seamlessly into Genesis 12, and you find it all the way through the book of Genesis. So therefore, if you are questioning the genre of literature of Genesis in the early chapters, you have to admit that your motivation for doing that is not coming from the text, because the text is saying something very different, and it's showing you that the two are, in fact, seamlessly joined together. Now, the reason why most people want to doubt the early chapters is, to be frank, because of outside considerations. And what I mean by that is either uniformitarian geology, evolutionary biology, or any number of other reasons that they look at. Now, another reason why Genesis is narrative, another phrase you'll find throughout the book, in the early chapters particularly, but throughout the whole book, is it'll often say, this is the book of the generations. Or, a new, or some of the translations will actually say, this is the history of. This is the history of. It can tip that phrase you'll find throughout the book. This is the history of. This is the history of. You don't find that in poetry. That is showing you. It I don't know how you could actually be any more clear than actually writing this is the history of within the text to make people understand this is dealing with history. And you'll find that phrase uh, 11 times throughout the first 11 chapters, and you'll find it 50 times throughout the rest of the book. It is definitely not poetry. So there's the first couple of reasons. They come straight from the text. Another reason is the text from elsewhere in the Bible. You'll notice, again, most of these are going to be from the text. It's a biblical authority issue. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is from the book of Exodus. This is the law code. This is definitely not poetic. This is a legal code that we have here. And we actually see that our six-day week, seven-day week, is based upon the creation narrative. So it's just another, for me, another reason why the text means exactly what it says right there. Another reason, if you move into the New Testament you'll find that Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are treated as historical narrative by all, pretty much, of the authors of the New Testament. 
at least 25 New Testament passages refer directly to the book of Genesis, and they are always treated as real history. Jesus himself quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 within the same argument when he's looking at marriage, and he uses the model of Adam and Eve's marriage to, to make a point with the Pharisees, and he is definitely taking it to be historical, or else his argument has no meaning. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he bases his whole soteriology, that is his whole theology of salvation, justification, and sin on the account of Adam. And that's why when you read Romans and you read Corinthians, you'll notice he's always talking about Adam. It's very crucial uh, to his theology. You'll find Jesus and Peter both mention the flood narrative. They both mention, well, Jesus mentions Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis. And you'll find 20 of the names from Genesis chapters 5 and 11, which are the genealogies, are also found in the genealogy of Christ. Now, why is that so significant? Because a genealogy is supposed to do one thing. Yes, they have a few different reasons for them in the ancient Near East, but they have to be historical personages if you're going to trace someone's genealogy. So if you've got 20 of those names from the early chapters of Genesis within the actual genealogy of Christ, the reason this is done is to form a link. It goes right back to Adam. This is why Luke traces Christ all the way back to Adam. It's a hugely important point, I would say, So you put all of those four things together, and that's just four. There's many more we could give. You can make a very strong case without even getting into discussions about evolution and science and all those secondary issues that come with this topic. Just from the text, you can make a very strong case that this is supposed to be historical narrative. Now, I did want to go a little further with this. A slightly more sophisticated way of getting around this problem has emerged very recently, in fact, by a scholar named William Lane Craig. Now, you may know Professor Bill Craig. He's a hugely popular Christian apologist. I have to admit, I hugely enjoy his work. I have most of his books. I I would recommend him on most subjects. Extremely smart guy. One's a very good minister, extremely good debater. But on this issue, disagree with him. And he's only really made his thoughts known on this issue very recently as he's been studying Adam and Eve. So he has decided not to call Genesis poetry because it's quite easy to argue against that, he has come up with a category, and he now calls it mytho-history. Okay, this is, and what he means by this, you can obviously see where he's going with this. It is history that is clothed in the figurative language of mythology that was common in the ancient Near East. And he openly admits that he got this viewpoint from a uh, secular Assyriologist called Thorkild Jacobson. Now, not that there's anything wrong with using scholarship, but you do have to be aware this Assyriologist does not believe that the Bible is the word of God. So he has a presupposition. When he's reading this ancient creation account, he does not consider it any different to the other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation. They're all the same. So, of course, he's going to put them all in the same category. But we know the Bible is actually, we consider it to be the inspired word of God. So you have to understand that it is different in that respect. Now, it still doesn't answer the question of why the New Testament authors, who were from a later time in a different culture, took it as history. So there's lots of questions about that. But it's very popular to do that today. I still reject that for the same arguments that I gave you. If you like YouTube, a lot of people go straight to YouTube today for their theology. It's a blessing and a curse. A lot of the up-and-coming YouTube apologists um, and influencers, as they like to be called, are generally theistic evolutionists. And that is a Christian who 
believes in evolution. That's how man and everything, the origin of species, if we could say that. But they also just believe that God was sort of like started that process off and he has directed that process. And again, these people are brothers in the Lord. You can definitely hold to these views. I personally believe you're going to have some inconsistencies as you play these out. But you know, I don't want to speak, speak ill of them. Again, some of them are, are doing a lot of good work. But on this issue, I differ with them. And they argue that you need to interpret Genesis pretty much like Bill Craig in light of all these ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. And I would say they rely too heavily on secularist scholarship for that. Now, why, why am I going into this with you? Because there's, remember I said, reading it the way I read it, there are some consequences. Six days, global flood. Reading it the way that these other people read it, there are some consequences. And this is the issue that when I have these discussions, when I see people debating it, no one wants to talk about these issues. Or most people don't even realize that by taking these other views, they are smuggling in all of these other things through the back door. And these other things get a little confusing. So let me just outline these for you, because these hopefully will put a nail in the coffin. So if you are a progressive creationist, that is someone who doesn't believe in evolution of people, but does believe in what we call geological evolution or stellar evolution in no different way than secular evolutionists do. They have the deep time models of the Earth's history, the geological time scale, but they are Christian, of course they're Christian, but they just believe the same, that God created people. But they are left with some problems. They have a problem with Adam and Eve, and this is why it always comes back to Adam and Eve in some ways. You see, there's no way from reading the Bible that you can get the dating of Adam and Eve, because we have these genealogies, even if you argue that there's gaps in every single section of these genealogies, that you can't get enough generations shoehorned in there to get Adam and Eve far enough back in history to match how far we have human, supposedly have human fossils going back according to the geological timescale of secular evolution. And you, you understand what I mean there, because that's a very important point. We have human fossils. If you accept their dating, we have human fossils going back at least 70,000 years. You cannot get Adam and Eve back that far from the Bible. So they are immediately confronted with that issue there. Now, they have a few ways they try and get around this. And this is, if you haven't heard this before, this is, gets a little unusual, but this is one of the baggages of this view. They have to posit that before we get to Adam and Eve, there was, in fact, a species of pre-Adamite, soulless primates who were basically human in everything as their evolutionary development but they could not be classed as human because God had not given them a soul yet. And they were roaming and populating the earth at this time. Professor Bill Craig, for example, has recently said he associates Adam with what evolutionists call Heidelberg man. Now, if you, if you know anything about this, Homo heidelbergensis was one of the evolutionary forebears of Homo sapiens, but from a different branch. I hope you can even see some of the problems that come with that. Firstly, Homo heidelbergensis just does not fit the evolutionary model of where Homo sapiens, which are humans, come from. So that would make Adam actually not a direct ancestor of humans today, which makes Poole's argument that Adam and justification are linked uh, nonsensical. That's a bit of a rare view. I haven't heard that before. But the most common view for this, what people believe, is that Adam and Eve were the first humans to come along from this line of evolutionary pre-humans 
And they were human in the sense that when evolution got to a certain level, God then looked at these creatures and he said, right, we're going to pick you two. And he, remember in Genesis where it says he breathed the breath of life into them. They interpret that as that is when they were given their souls, even though they were alive, they were given their souls, and thus they became Adam and Eve, and that's when the narrative starts. And that allows them to have all of this earth history beforehand to fit the fossil record. It allows them, if you think it does, to try and harmonise the text. And that is ultimately what they believe. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that when that happened, you would have Adam and Eve and you'd have all of these other still soulless, evolved primates, humanoids, basically. And to the eye, they wouldn't really look any different. They're all evolved to the same level. The only difference is God has now made these ones Adam and Eve. Thus, there is no barrier to reproduction. And this is how they explain, you know, this question, where did Cain get his wife, and all these questions that come. This is one of the ways they answer them, that Adam and Eve would have actually been able to reproduce across these lines. Thus, they would have actually been merging with pre-hominid ape-like creatures. Now, I'm not trying to make this sound stupid. This is, this is deadly serious. This is one of the consequences. You cannot believe those views without actually having this come in the back door. Now, let me just ask you, whether you believe Genesis is poetry or not, whether you believe in six-day creation or not, does that scenario, what I've just described, sound remotely like anything you can read in the book of Genesis? I mean, there's not even a hint of that in Genesis. So you have to admit that that is coming from outside the Bible, completely and utterly from outside considerations. Now, there are those who don't accept biological evolution in in that scenario, but they still accept the old cosmic evolution and the fossil record and all these issues. They still have the same problem. They try to get around it a different way. They actually say that these creatures died out before Adam and Eve, So that's how they explain it. They say, oh, yes, there were these people. That explains the fossil records, but they died out. And then God started with Adam and Eve. John Stott, you may know him, brilliant theologian in many ways, wrote the classic book, The Cross of Christ, masterful book on uh, what the cross did. But this is what he said about this. He says, my acceptance of Adam and Eve as as historical is not incompatible with my belief that several forms of pre adamic hominoids seem to have existed for thousands of years previously. It is conceivable that God created Adam out of one of them. Now, I want you to think this through with me. They went extinct. Now, what happens when you go extinct? You die, yes? Now, paleoanthropologists, these are people who study fossils, they will show you from the fossil record that the death of these creatures, supposedly, there are evidences of cannibalism, there is evidence of mass fighting, injuries due to violence, scalping, disease, syphilis, cancers, all of these things are in the fossil record for this pre-hominoid species. Now this is, I hope you understand, this is weird because it sounds weird, it's probably not how you've heard it, but it's just what happens when you try and mix these two things together. Now the reason I'm raising this as an issue is I would say that all of those things, people scalping one another, tribal violence, death, disease, sin, cancer, syphilis, I would argue that they are evidence of sin nature and they are evidence of a sinful world. But remember, they are claiming that all of this is happening before Adam and Eve. Before Adam and Eve. So we read the Bible that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. On their narrative... 
There's been death, disease, suffering, violence, bloodshed for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years previously. And for me, that's it, that's game over. That completely destroys the narrative of the Bible, in, in my opinion. And I think I've got a good biblical reason for that. And what's so inconsistent is that these same people, whenever, if you see them in a debate with someone who's an atheist or something like that, whenever the question comes up, why does God allow death and suffering? Okay, we've all, that's a question. All your non-Christian friends will raise that with you at some point. The answer that we like to give, and it's a, it's a right answer, is that you know, this stuff is an intruder into the world. Death and suffering entered the world when Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3. And they give this same answer. I've heard them all do it. And when you're speaking to someone who doesn't understand the biblical history like this, it, it kind of sounds, it's an explanation. But I would argue they can't give that answer. Because by their own admission and acceptance of the fossil record, they have already just said, we just read it from John Stott, death existed, people were going extinct, soulless people, whatever that means, before, long before Adam and Eve. Now, so you see the problem there. So this is, I would say that that is a much bigger problem than having to maybe stand out and say that you believe the earth was created in six days. So by trying to placate one group of people, you end up smuggling in all these other theological issues that you have to deal with, and most people just do not deal with them. Now, there are a few more issues. I can see, actually, guys, I'm not going to get to Psalm 105 tonight. I was ambitious with that. But I wanted to actually have this laid down, and it will be, on the, it'll be one of these things that people can go back to and we can point to tonight. So... I'll finish off Psalm 104 because there's a few more things I want to share with you. So if you accept these views, you have death and suffering before Adam and Eve's sin. Now in Genesis 2, chapter 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Again, very famous verse. The term living being is a term that's also applied to animals, to living creatures, to all of the, the things that are given life in that sense by God. So it makes a specific argument that God did not breathe life into a pre-existing living being. He created them from non-living matter, the dust of the ground, it says here. That's the whole point of this verse. So the view that there are all these different creatures and at some point God chose Adam actually doesn't just alter the course of scripture it doesn't just say it's a poetic interpretation i would argue from genesis 2 7 alone it stands in absolute direct opposition to what the bible teaches and therefore if you if you're willing to accept it you will have all these things that come in through the back door which are problems which i believe is what happens when you put biblical authority under whether it's you know secular geology or any one of these other authorities we must have biblical authority at the top. So I would argue that it is in fact much easier to accept the text of Genesis in a straightforward manner, believing it to be historical narrative, even if that means you maybe have to stand out a little bit from the prevailing scientific opinion, at least you can be consistent with your theology. And we do theology to study the nature and character of God. And as we've seen from Psalm 104, one of the things that the whole issue of creation, when we look at the stars, when we look at people, when we look at birds feeding, one of the things that should well up within us is that the Lord is in control. My heart, it says, my heart will sing. It says, the glory of the Lord endures forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Now, I have trouble reconciling that with hundreds of thousands of soulless hominoids scalping and killing and dying from cancer 
before Adam and Eve came to sin. Now, again, when you put it like that, it does sound stupid. I don't want to belittle the view because I can guarantee you the majority of evangelical leaders hold that view, even if they don't know they hold that view, simply because they're not willing to come down on six-day creation. So when we hear this argument, yes, creation issues are a secondary issue in the sense that it doesn't matter towards your salvation. Thankfully, Christ is so gracious, he's made the way of salvation that it doesn't necessarily matter what you believe. But as we start to think deeply about God, as we grow in the Lord, as we want to understand more of his character, we want to understand the world, these things suddenly do become important. And that's why I believe it's good to actually think through them on occasion. And that's just one or two problems. We haven't even begun to talk about the problems with a local flood versus a global flood. That's another issue that's involved with this. I'm not going to do that now. Let me just tie it in now, but we'll just tie it back to our psalm, and so verse 100, Psalm 104. Look at the first verse of that psalm. It shows the purpose of a poetical psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. Now, with those two narratives that I've described, that God can just simply say, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. That is the creative power of God, that he can take the dust of the ground that he created and form something like Adam and put the soul into him. That is the Lord who is great. Those other narratives, for me, don't evoke that sort of response. That might just be me personally, but that that is one of the problems that I see. So it shows us the purpose of what creation should be. We extol God for his majesty, for his power in the created universe. You see this through all of the creation psalms. You actually see it through all of the psalms. You see the Apostle Paul making this argument in the book of Romans. It's all throughout the scriptures. And then it takes us, the rest of the psalm that we read, you'll see it talks about all these different aspects of creation that God wants us to know about that the psalmist here was obviously able to look at in the world and write this psalm. And then at the very end of the psalm, it's a call to praise. So you see this, you begin by looking at wonder at the creative works, looking at how great the Lord is. And when you've examined, when you've thought about, when you've read the psalm, when you've meditated on it, there's nothing left you can do except praise God. And that is what this psalm is for. And that is what the whole issue of creation actually is supposed to do in us. We see people arguing about it all the time. I would just remind you, the Lord's servants are not to be quarrelsome in that manner. We stand for truth, but we want to be able to do it in love. We want to affirm, really, that creation is a biblical issue. It's an authority issue, so therefore we should be teaching it. But we must remember the whole point of it is that it should cause us to praise God. Because ultimately, what do we learn in the New Testament? Who is the creator God? Colossians 1. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. We're talking about the Lord here. So if we are putting something on the Lord that he has not revealed, that he has not spoken, and I would say casts shadows upon his character with how he has created and ordered the world, that is a big issue. And it's one that theologians need to be engaged in. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.